Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Please welcome Dr. Moira Salaji. Dr. Salaji is regarded as one of the leading experts on the health of children in foster and kinship care. She is a primary care pediatrician, advocate, educator, and professor of pediatrics at UCLA. Prior to that, she was at the University of Rochester, and during her 30 years in Rochester, developed a community-based, integrated care medical home for children in foster care, and led the development of the first healthcare standards for children in foster care. She is a nationally renowned expert in childhood trauma and trauma-informed care, and has worked closely with the American Academy of Pediatrics on numerous committees and task force, developing policies for children in foster care and kinship care. Dr. Moira Salaji will be the incoming president-elect for the American Academy of Pediatrics and will take that position in January of 2021. Hi, Moira. How are you today? I'm good, Leah. How are you? I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today about this really important topic about children in foster care and especially what pediatricians and other healthcare providers can do to make the trauma of being in foster care less and how we can do better by these kids. And I thought we'd just start today um, just talking a little bit about how you even got into this work. That in itself is an interesting story. I started medical school when I was 28 and then had my first child in medical school, took a year off. after she was born. And then I job shared my residency, working two months on, two months off, and had my second child while I was an intern. And it was when I was a second year resident, I used to try to use my months off um, to explore options in pediatrics, because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I I had started med school thinking I'd be a pediatric radiologist and then discovered pediatrics and um, fell in love. And and I knew I wanted to work with um, higher risk populations. So in my months off, I had this amazing opportunity to explore all the different areas of pediatrics that were available in the larger community around Rochester, New York, where we lived. And I was asked to take over for a pediatrician who was going out on maternity leave who was working in this tiny um, foster care clinic in the health department. It was open two hours a week on Thursday mornings. So I walked in there. I was doing like an eight-week stint for her every Thursday morning. And it was, it was shocking. <laughs> um, kids would show up at 9 o'clock, all of them. Uh, they were given a number. <laughs> and that's how they were called back. It was basically do an army physical. One doctor there used to line up all the kids, basically do all their eyes, all their ears, all their hearts. (laughs) My approach was a little bit different. There were no histories. Uh, The charts were like one sheet of paper inside a file folder. 
Um, so it was kind of stunning. Um, and I had a nurse, El Eleanor, who was always in my head saying, these kids deserve better. And then about my sixth week there, only one patient showed up out of the eight or nine who were scheduled. And he's a 16-year-old. And he had asthma. So since I had the time, I spent a long time teaching him about asthma and his medications and how to manage them and how to understand when he might need to change things. And at the end of the visit, I literally had my hand on the doorknob and just turned and asked him, is there anything else I can do for you today? And it was like the air just got sucked out of the room. And Finally, and I was at least smart enough to stand there as a resident and wait. And um, finally, he said, what did I do when I was six months old to be put in foster care? And I, fortunately, I had the wherewithal to say there's just nothing you could have done to end up in foster care. But I'm going to find the answer to your question, which is why you're in foster care. And we scheduled an appointment for him to come back in two weeks. and. I went on a great exploration of the foster care system or lack of system. And his chart, I think there were 23 volumes to his child welfare chart spread throughout the building. He had had umpteen caseworkers. He fortunately had been in one home his entire life. This was back in the era before adoption out of foster care was really much easier as it is now. It's still a challenge, but Back then, you could stay in foster care forever. Um, and he was going to a good school system. He was active in sports. He was a great student. He was headed toward college. I mean, if you looked at this kid from the outside, he looked great. And yet there was this big hole in the middle of his life where that birth family of his was supposed to be. And in the process, I discovered that by the time he was placed in foster care as a young infant, his mother, who was a chronic alcoholic, was really institutionalized most of the time. And he had six or seven other siblings whom he really didn't even know about. So he came back, his current caseworker, and I met with him and went through this. And other caseworkers had actually explained this to him. But, you know, if you're not ready to hear something, you're not going to hear it. And I think this was really probably as part of his identity formation as an adolescent. He was exploring for the first time, or maybe he'd been thinking about it for years and finally asked. So we were able to explain that to him. And then his caseworker was able to reconnect him with a couple of his siblings. And I hope he went on and had a good life because he certainly had the one thing that most kids need, which is parents who um, believed in him and cared for him deeply and had his back. But that for me was an eye-opening experience. So I found out there were 1,200 kids in our system at the time, that this was really the standard of care, that there was no literature in pediatrics except for two articles. So I called the two authors, Ed Shore and Mark Sims, and picked their brains. And I, I went to the head of child and family services on the social services side of the building. 
And she was amazing, Diane Larder. I ended up, she was really one of my mentors. I explained to her what I was seeing downstairs, that these kids were really receiving terrible care and that there was a much better way to do this. Remember, I'm a second-year resident. What do I really know? <laughs> and Diane is amazing. She literally, you know, papers all over her office. She sweeps the papers off a chair, you know, has me sit down. We talk for about an hour. I literally came into her office without an appointment, but she was kind enough to spend time with me anyway. And next thing I know, I'm sitting on a task force as a second-year resident with a lot of much more powerful people in the community than myself. And I get charged with coming up with different models of care for kids in foster care so that we can then think through the cost, the quality of care, and how we might improve outcomes. So again, what did I know as a second year resident? So I, I spent a lot of time asking questions. And the next meeting, a month later, I think it was maybe two months later, I presented four models of care. And very quickly, Diane and the group, but mostly Diane, landed on centralizing the care at the health department, being open all day, every day, being run like a regular practice. So we were really trying to build a private practice model inside the public health system, which really wasn't done in New York State. And this took some time, obviously, and I don't know all of the details of what went on behind the scenes to make this happen. But it did happen, and I essentially created a job for myself at the end of residency. But in order to start the clinic, I had to spend a little time doing other things to support myself. So I spent half a day a week in juvenile justice and then two days a week in a private practice. And that private practice, which was a small, semi-suburban practice in Rochester, I always describe it as the cheers bar where everyone knows your name. (laughs) It was a very personal practice. I thought, this is what these kids need. This is what I'm going to do with what was then called foster care pediatrics. But, you know, it was so interesting because, you know, as in, in training, you know, we have the opportunity to make child protective referrals. And sometimes we feel that when we've done that, we've kind of solved the issue. And what we almost never see as pediatricians, and certainly as trainees, is what happens to children once child welfare gets involved. And child welfare is a very well-intended system. You know, It's intended to be a safe harbor for children on a temporary basis while they provide service to families so that kids can reunify with families. It's underfunded. People are undertrained. I made my first CPS referral. as in my second month of residency. I was an intern in the NICU. And this little baby with full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome and arthrogryposis. And his parents came in rip-roaring drunk one night at 10 p.m. And I filed the protective because they were going to discharge this infant to his parents in the next several days. And ironically... So we started the, opened our doors in February of 90 in foster care pediatrics, our new model. I ended up finishing my halftime residency a little bit early because I'd done some extra months here and there. And one of my very first patients was this little boy that I had referred. 
into the system, who had fortunately ended up in an outstanding home. They were trying to adopt him, but, you know, by this time he was five and a half. And um, it was eye-opening to see. So in this case, my referral actually had a good outcome for this particular little boy who, even though with full-blown alcohol syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, he was actually very bright. He had some problems with his executive function in retrospect, now that I understand that better. But he was musically incredibly talented. And he did not get adopted until he was almost 17. I mean, that's how slow the system was. So often when we do make referrals, it gets lost. I mean, we don't have that story unless by some miracle they stay in our practices. I think the other thing about your story is this idea that one person, even in residency, that you can make change. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned in just being a member of the AAP is that somehow, you know, this grassroots, you don't have to be an academic researcher. I mean, you may become that, but, you know, if there's, there's an in, there's a, a, a way, there's an idea that change can happen. So anyway, it's fascinating what you've been able to do in that time. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mentor a lot of young people now that I am an academic pediatrician. And I didn't start out this way. And one of the things I tell them is to just remain open. You know, that so many of them want to have the answers for the whole rest of their careers in residency like or, or in fellowship, you know, where they're going, how they're going to work, what they're going to do. And, um, and, and some people just don't know what they want to do. And I have to say for me, and I've seen this work for other people, it is keeping your eyes opening and listening and find what resonates with you and, and what you're passionate about. So this, this group of children in foster care and then the larger group of kids in kinship care who often have very similar circumstances really became my passion in life. I had the vision that I was going to solve their health issues in five years, which just shows you how much I didn't know at the time. Sometimes um, you have to be optimistic and yeah. naive. You know, if, if, if you believed what people told you that you couldn't do stuff, you wouldn't do it. Right. You never take the plunge. Right? But you kind of got to go in with both feet and then kind of flail around and figure out what to do. Yeah, I agree. and. So it was a learning curve, and I was very fortunate being in the community I was in because it was small enough um, and progressive enough in the healthcare system to be able to to try things. And there were lots of people to talk with. I mean, I I was in the home of biopsychosocial medicine, thank goodness, and um, you know, so there were the Bob Haggertys and. Bob Hucklemans and uh, Meg Colgans and Alyssa McInerney. I mean, there were just, I had so many mentors and role models and people's brains I, I could pick. And I did a lot of that. And it became pretty obvious to me very early. Well, a couple of things happened. We opened our doors, hired an amazing nurse practitioner who had a lot of different experiences. She was very seasoned, had a very large interest in behavioral health and grief and loss. And 
it became apparent very early on that kids who come into the system experience tremendous amounts of grief and loss. And because they've been removed from everything they've ever known. And even though that might be terrible, I've had very few kids tell me over time that they don't want to return to their parents. They might want to return to a healthier version of their parents, but most kids do want to, in fact, go home. Um, and about 60% end up returning to family, most to the birth parents, and some remain with extended family or return to extended family, and about 20% get adopted out. About 10% age out of our system, about 3% of youth elope, you know, just disappear, which is tragic, because they probably are the worst outcomes of all if we could find them. Um, so it's a system, you know, and there are lots of subpopulations of kids in care, which I think until I was there, I didn't realize it. You know, back in the, when I started, it was the midst of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, the numbers in foster care had mushroomed. Um, so we had these high percentage of substance-exposed premature infants entering care at one end of, end of the spectrum. We had about 10% of our population was medically complex. I mean, like, really medically complex. Then we had... There's a large portion of kids, um, especially adolescents, with significant mental health issues from kind of lifelong trauma at that point. We have our pregnant and parenting teens. We have our substance-using teens. We have our unaccompanied refugee minors. <laughs> we have, you know, it's just a swath of different subpopulations with slightly different needs. And I, I started doing this in the days before we really understood um, the biological underpinnings of the impact of trauma and adversity on kids. And so I entered this profession at a time where, yeah, I quickly recognized like 80% of my kids have a mental health diagnosis or problem significant behavioral health problems, grief and loss issues. So one of the first things that I did, thanks to this nurse practitioner knowing a psychologist in town who was an expert in bereavement and loss, and he did a lot of group bereavement work, we applied to the AAP for a Healthy Tomorrows grant, got it, um, and it provided us five years of funding to do these bereavement and loss groups, and we were able to maintain them for a total of um, nine years with other funding. But these were age stratified for kids. They were a mixture of, you know, there was major motor activity, a meal, and, and then a craft, which was talk time. And kids didn't have to talk, obviously. It was a lot of work especially for Dr. Henricks, who ran, ran the program. And we had a peer support group for foster parents, which was amazing. And we tried to start one for birth parents, but really attendance was, we never had more than one or two people come to those groups. Because the, everybody has grief and loss issues. Foster parents have it because they have kids coming and leaving. Kinship parents the same. Um, and the birth parents have tremendous loss issues. And they've probably had a life of loss issues. 
these sessions ran, they, we ran three groups a year, 10 weeks each, but we would often have people repeat because they didn't want to leave the groups. And then I discovered that, um, you know, we really needed other mental health services besides these. And, and the county already had groups that they worked with, but I had kids as young as four with five mental health diagnoses on multiple psychotropic medications. And I just kept saying, this can't be right. How does a four-year-old, like you pretty quickly identify like who your great families are and who's in this foster care work who really doesn't have the skill sets for it. And I I would have kids placed in, in certain families where I could literally watch the kid heal over three to six months. The younger they were, the faster it happened. And I would see four-year-olds who were incredibly traumatized. And I, I had this one foster mommy's call it the mother duck, because <laughs> she, she took in six kids in one family, literally from like eight to one, eight years of age down to one year of age. And the four-year-old in this family was so traumatized. Um, or at least visibly more traumatized than the other kids. But she glommed, talk about insecure attachment, staring you in the face. She just clung to this foster mother. And this foster mother is quite young, but she was the gentlest soul. And she just very gently, you know, she would always respond to the clinging, hug the child, gently speak with her, and then just so softly move her on. I watched her over and over again do this, you know, because we were seeing those kids pretty often when they first came. They were all malnourished. I mean, it was, there was a whole lot going on in that group of six. And um, so for me, as a, you know, and I'm a young mother at this point in time, I learned, and I was well raised. I grew up poor, in a low income family with. Parents had eighth grade educations, but they were amazing parents. So I was well raised. But I, I learned so much from some of these incredible foster parents who really focused on the kids and understood that these kids needed nurturing. And, and you know, like uh, somebody said to me, love's not enough. Well, it isn't enough. You really have to have a skill set here to actualize that love that you have for these kids. And, and you have to do it in a way that doesn't re-traumatize them. You know, I had foster parents in my office who would say, I told him if he cried for his shots um, that I was going to send him back into the system. And I would just... <laughs> Yeah, I had your visible reaction, <laughs> you know, and then trying to keep the mask on as a professional and, and say, well, you know, there are probably better ways to prepare your child for immunization. So let's talk about how we're going to do that moving Maybe we can try ice cream or something. Yeah, let's try oh, blackmail. Oh, <laughs> oh, no, for bribery. Yeah, because the last thing a child who's been removed from his parents and maybe has already had several placements needs is to feel like he's going to be abandoned again. I mean, it's the absolute worst thing you can say to a child in that situation. And then, you know, at the other extreme to see the mother duck, you know, who just knew that kid just needed reassurance 
everything's okay, you're safe, I'm here, I'll always be here for you. And, you know, and foster parents are in this terrible bind. They, they can't promise a the kid they're going to be there forever. Unless that kid's freed for adoption and they're the adoptive candidate, the adoptive parent candidate. And even then, <laughs> it, can, it can still all go south. So until the adoption is final or the guardianship is final, you can never... Pr- but, you know, I watch foster parents over and over again say, I will always love you. You will always have a home in my heart. I mean, these are the words that... Could promise, something they could promise. Yeah. And it's not hard, <laughs> you know. That's what you're talking about is, I mean, this isn't fancy psychiatric care or complex medication for bipolar disorder. I mean, this is like human kindness, connection, and how incredibly powerful that is. And also that there is this group of individuals, these foster care parents that are such incredible teachers, and somehow if you could... Yes. Duplicate that or pass on that that knowledge because right. they've somehow figured that out or they're just naturally that sort of person. Yeah. I used to ask them. <laughs> you know, when you see this in action, the natural thing is, how did you get this way? <laughs> like, tell me about. And a lot of them came out of these large, you know, families where they were well nurtured and loved or their parents used to take in the neighborhood kids. There was always a backstory um, to many of these families. And some of them came out of um, families where foster parenting or kinship parenting was really an intergenerational experience. They, they, They did it and passed down the methods. I was also fortunate to be in Rochester because, um, there was a group there, Mount Hope Family Center at the University of Rochester, and they were very involved with child welfare, doing a lot of work on maternal depression and child maltreatment. And so they introduced me to the developmental pathopsychology literature, <laughs> which most of which I don't understand, but I used to read the introduction and the discussion for some things to make sense of it. But um, we learned. You know, the way um, psychologists have really learned what do children need to thrive um, came out of that work and out of the resilience literature in psychology. But a lot of what we know about what kids need comes out of what goes wrong when they don't get what they need. And there's countless articles on childhood maltreatment and the horrible outcomes that largely ensue from from maltreatment. So they were in my life. And then around the same time, Vince Folletti published The Adverse Childhood Experience. And I didn't even see that paper, but I went to an AAP meeting, I think in 2000 or 2001, where he had presented for about an hour and a half to a room of about 500 pediatricians. And he was an internist at Kaiser dealing with people with obesity and started asking questions when they fell off the wagon of controlling their eating about what happened. And as he asked 
kept asking like what happened and and then what and then what and then what he really started identifying similar things happening to each of these individuals back in their childhood and he was dealing with middle class upper middle class college educated mostly white people <laughs> um who from the outside look like they have a very good life and he identified you know the top 10 things childhood maltreatment in the form of abuse and neglect um family disruption in terms of divorce parent with mental health problems or substance use issues or a father being incarcerated and so he divided it up into 10 and the thing i always say to my trainees about aces is adverse childhood experiences makes it almost the term almost minimalizes what these experiences are these experiences occur in the family child physical abuse child sexual abuse emotional abuse emotional neglect neglect your parent who is substance using you know these environments are chaotic they're often hostile for kids they're definitely chaotic for kids they're unpredictable it disrupts the core thing that every child needs and that's a safe harbor of their family right your attachment relationship with your parents is the template for your future relationships and if that is not a safe predictable nurturing environment it sets you up in life very poorly and it is hard if you are a parent with significant depression to be focused on your children unless you're being in treatment and in so many of these families it's not just one problem but it's multiple problems and and so when the ace score hits 4 <laughs> and kids accumulate aces right maybe as an infant you'll have a substance abusing parent but by the time you're 18 you'll have felt the impact of that person's parenting in so many ways um so i stood there i literally stood i was in the back of the room i stood there at this meeting saying he is talking about the kids i take care of and now i like all the tumblers clicked into place for me um and it i also understood why i see the behaviors i see and if i put the pictures of the kids that i see together i was seeing symptoms of ADHD and symptoms of anxiety and you know kids just going off suddenly they look like they're bipolar <laughs> you know sometimes they're fine and then out of nowhere they're in a complete rage attack it tied together for me and then then started coming all the work um you know several sciences kind of like simultaneously came together so there was the aces then there was the early brain development stuff that started coming out work by Jack Shonkoff from the Harvard Center for the Developing Child um that that led to that 2012 um AAP policy statement on toxic stress and its accompanying technical report so by then it's that late but but through that decade there was an amazing amount of work that just reinforced that if kids do not grow up in safe stable nurturing environments with a caregiver who is responsive keeps them at the center keeps their mind in mind and is stable over time that 
it changes the structure of the brain. And now we know, you know, the, the gene environment dance is dynamic, right? And if your environment is a great environment, that's what your brain adapts to and builds all the structures that support typical childhood development. And if you are chronically exposed or frequently exposed to a chaotic, non-nurturing environment, let alone an abusive environment, your brain adapts to live in that environment. Your brain has to be focused on survival. And so your brain builds the structures it needs to survive. It's basically the brain where the alarm system is constantly on alert. And it develops those systems at the expense of the systems that support thinking and learning. Something I had heard Dr. Forky had, I was at a conference meeting and they were talking about symptoms of children in foster care. And a couple of ahas for me were constipation and sleep. And that if your brain was on alert and you were terrified, you were certainly not going to sleep well and you didn't have time to poop. And it finally made sense to me that that was somehow protective. And yet, of course, it brought something to that behavior. Yeah, and I would say sleep is probably the most prevalent trauma symptom that we see in, in the foster care and even the kinship care population. But you know, there are ways to deal with these things or to deal with tantrums. You know, And I didn't realize until probably 2005 that what foster parents were describing to me as rage attacks were really trauma reminders. Something happened. And I witnessed this a few times in my own office where I turned suddenly or I laid a child on the exam table to examine her perineum or there might have been my tone of voice. I don't know. I tried always to be gentle, but something would turn and the kid would just go off. And if children experience even a subtle reminder of prior trauma, they're in fight or flight. They're right there. And you, what you have to do is stay with them, remain calm, get them through the storm. You're not going to talk them out of it. Yelling at them certainly makes it worse. <laughs> you know, I've watched caregivers try many different approaches. And these reminders, you know, it, sometimes they're so subtle that it's really hard for the caregiver who might be in the room when this happens, to even know what's setting the kid off. And it can take some real work to figure it out, especially with a young child who doesn't have great verbal skills. I also think about if you put a kid in a very loud classroom with a bunch of other kids who may or may not be traumatized themselves. You know, so many times we get, you know, um, referrals, you know, or you hear the parents say, you know, they're terrible at school, they're throwing chairs. And again, that's, isn't that bipolar behavior? And, you know, well, maybe there's more to the story, right? <laughs> maybe there's more. Yeah, or, and then that kid's likely to get expelled or uh, suspended for a period of time, which, you know, these children are educationally often behind their peers. And it's the absolute worst solution to the problem. And as we got better at understanding trauma and triggers and reminders and how to manage trauma symptoms, 
being able to work with school districts a little bit to say individual teachers, you know, you need to have somebody who can come into that room, maybe take that child aside and sit with them. And maybe that child needs a different setting. Which in New York, we were often able to get 504 plan or an IEP based on their emotional needs. I, unfortunately, it always ended up with emotionally disturbed as the label. And I'm like, this child is traumatized, not emotionally disturbed. Our job is to help them heal. <laughs> well, and that's interesting in terms of thinking about from, you know, the busy pediatrician and we have children coming in from the welfare system. But certainly in my practice, I would say most of my kids that are in a foster care situation or in kinship care, so they have even less institutional support. And that there's something to be said for um, this idea of modeling and what in a busy day with you know 25 patients that you're seeing, what can a busy pediatrician do to you know turn the tables and how make this better? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, uh, I have to say, I think pediatricians in general are pretty amazing at doing some of those things very naturally. You know, we greet people very kindly. We greet kids. We engage people very well. We're good listeners. Um, and, you know, I always tried to listen to the problem list or the complaints of the parent and not have the child in the room because these kids do not need to hear the list <laughs> of what's wrong with them. Um, I think keeping that mindset, um, you know, in medicine, medicine's very problem focused. So we're always talking about what's wrong with you. Trauma work requires us to think what happened to you. Um, because we're not going to fix it all. What we have to do is try to understand that child, help the parent understand that child, and then give them some tools to work along. I think some of the great things that we do is we're very child-centered people, and we model that in our office. I like to catch parents being good the same way that we teach parents to catch children being good and, and offer specific positive praise for good behavior. So if I see a parent who's monitoring a child while talking with me, I will say, wow, I like what you just did there. Even though you're focused on our conversation, you're monitoring and you're able to redirect and you did that so nicely. You know, because they don't even, sometimes parents don't even know what they're doing that's so great and until we point it out. Um, or I might point out, I love your tone of voice when you're talking to your child. I love the way you really focus on him when he's talking to you because that means that you're trying to understand him. Um, or I like how you redirect it. I mean, I just, I just try to catch those moments. Um, and it makes parents feel good because nothing makes you feel less adequate than your own child. And imagine how much less adequate you feel when you're parenting somebody else's child and you don't know their back. And I think you're really right. I don't think that pediatricians appreciate the weight of our words. I mean, I've had lots of parents, you know, I've been doing this a long time that have said, you know, when you said X, Y, and Z to me 20 years ago, you know, that always stuck with me. And, you know, I hope for those moments that you say the right thing. And I, I also remember one time being in the newborn nursery and watching a dad, a first time dad hold his baby and 
in his arms, but far away from his body. And I just said, you know, why don't you hold him a little closer? And it was like he melted into the baby. And, I went, and then he started doing the sway, you know, yeah. the mom's sway. <laughs> he was doing the daddy's sway. And it was like, that was an easy thing yeah. just to say, oh, how does that feel? And he was like, oh, because he had no idea what he was doing. And, right. you know, so I think what you're saying is, again, this isn't a prescription for a medication. This no. isn't a complicated um, regimen. It's human kindness, recognition of when we do things well, and you know, positive behavior reinforcement, right? Exactly. Yeah. I've always said, too, about pediatricians, if kids can pee and puke and poop on us, it's hard to not be able to get down to their level and just, right. you know, be with kids because you can't be fancy and do this job. No, you and, can't. <laughs> and I think there's something. Um, when you and I had talked in the past, you shared a story with me that I thought was so lovely about somebody modeling this fabulous kind of interaction. Could you talk about Miss Jenny? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> Uh, so I was a pretty young pediatrician when Miss Jenny came into my life. So our clinic had been open several years. And one day, late in the day, it was close to five o'clock, two children, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, were literally left in our waiting room. Just, we don't know who left them. We didn't know their names. We knew nothing about these children. So um, we brought them back out of the waiting room um, into one of our, oh, the clinic was pretty awful at that time. So our nicest of the awful exam rooms and just tried to console them and had somebody call upstairs to child welfare to let them know what was going on. And they sent somebody down just to look at the kids, still didn't know who they were, their names, anything. They, they were literally screaming and sobbing and we're inconsolable and the nurses I we were just trying to you know remain calm ourselves but we were in a bit of a tizzy which didn't help them at all and then I got a call saying Miss Jenny's on her way over so Miss Jenny who's probably 70 something at this point comes in uh, with her 13 year old adopted son Ethan and she asked where the children are. And I said, well, I'll go in. And she said, well, it's okay. And so opens the door. The first thing she does is she gets down on her knees on the floor, eye level with these children. She just starts talking so softly in a high-pitched voice. And she just says, hi, I'm Miss Jenny. And this is Ethan. She said, you know what I've been doing? I've been cooking. And she starts talking about chicken, her, her roasted chicken and the collard greens and the mashed potatoes and the gravy. And she like over and over, she goes, I really love to feed children. And just kind of like, it was like a mantra that she had. And finally, the little four-year-old starts slowing down as the six-year-old still off the end of edge of the cliff and the four-year-old just starts <laughs> and and then he says i like mashed potatoes i like gravy and then she says well what's your name and he tells her and 
you know, she, so he's calming down and she kind of weaves Ethan in to sit with him. And then she kind of turns to the little girl and she says, well, your brother wants to come to my house for dinner. Would you like to come with him? And she's like, she's eyeing her brother and eyeing Miss Jenny. And pretty soon she starts nodding. She's still really sobbing hard. But I'd say in 10 minutes, she had those two children holding her hand walking out of the building to go to her house to have dinner. And, you know, and she's the whole time she's kind of explaining that, you know, Ethan lives with her and he came to her house for dinner one day and he got to stay. And she's really so glad because she adopted him, but there are other people in her house. So she's kind of explaining the transition to them into her house in the softest, kindest voice imaginable. It was, for me, as a young pediatrician, just eye-opening. You know, I had seen kids come in and have severe tantrums in my office and parents yelling at them to be quiet or, you know, ignoring them. And she knew just what they needed, you know, which was just, you need an adult to be here with you and to remain calm and hold your distress just to talk in a sing-songy voice because that builds this safe harbor around children. It, it makes them feel safe. She was doing all sorts of things. She was what I call the three R's. She was reassuring them they were safe. She was helping them to regulate. And she was already teaching them some routines in her house. <laughs> and these three R's, reassuring, safety, routines, flexible but predictable routines and helping kids to regulate. We do this as parents all the time, right? When our baby's upset and crying, we soothe them, which shuts down their stress response and allows them to calm down. And as kids get older, we start teaching them. We remain emotional containers, but we start teaching them. We teach them words for their emotions. But, you know, you can't, all you can do when a child is, out of control, upset, is to remain that emotional container. And sometimes it's holding them, but if they're flailing all over the place, then that's not safe. It, it's still sitting with them. And this works with teenagers, right? It's just remaining calm. I mean, that works for adults, right? I mean, we don't yeah. want to have somebody yelling at us. When I was listening to you tell this story, I was like, it was like a physical... Oh, listening to your voice get soft and calm. And I think about when we run codes. I mean, we're not, if we're yelling and screaming at the staff, it is not a good situation. But if the lead person running the code exactly. is yeah. calm, is doing a routine, I mean, everybody knows what they're supposed to do and remains calm, it goes so much better. So, so much better. Yeah, that is really helpful. And I love the three R's, and I'll make sure to include that. Um, when we summarize all your takeaways. <laughs> so in thinking about all of this that you shared, I'm wondering if you had the power to develop a system that was dream care for kids in foster care, what would you do? Ironically, somebody asked me that question from the federal government a number of years ago. Um, but we, we actually tried to build this dream system in Rochester. I must say, uh, if I could pick one thing, though, I would really dramatically improve the training and education and professionalize child welfare in a way that just has not been done. 
you know, medicine was a mess until the 1920s, right? When we closed a lot of medical schools that were doing poor training and we really professionalized our own profession. We set standards for our profession. And this isn't to say, you know, being a child welfare worker is the hardest job in the world next to being a foster parent. (laughs) Those are the two hardest jobs in the world from what I see. And both of them are poorly trained to do this job. We need to do unbelievable trauma training with our foster families. We need to do foster parent mentoring. We did a program like this, you already brought it up, where we took our, you know, some of our really solid, amazing foster parents and we had them mentor new parents coming into care. We did this little randomized clinical control trial for one to three-year-olds and the foster parents who were new and mentored, their kids had much better social emotional outcomes than the children of the foster parents who didn't have this kind of mentoring. Of course, have I ever been able to get this funded more broadly? No. So I, I think that we have to put all of our foster parents through not just trauma training, but do it in a way that teaches them practical skill sets like the three R's like special time in with kids. You know, if you can take a child every day as a parent and spend 10 to 15 minutes with them doing something the child enjoys. Now, when it's a toddler, you might have to offer them a few choices, but a six-year-old, they can pick the activity. And you turn off your cell phones and all of your other screens, and you literally focus on that child. That builds the parent-child relationship. And so when things are a little bit out of sorts because it's a crazy day, the kid kind of knows, like all you sometimes have to do is look at the kid (laughs) and they know you're there for them. So we prescribe special time in a lot. We prescribe specific products. Anyway, I'm getting off your question, but I I would do that. I, I think training and education and actually what I had suggested to HHS at the federal government was that they actually create a five-year master's degree program for caseworkers where they literally, you know, so they're working, but they're also taking a federally designed curriculum that includes all these elements plus all the other stuff that they need to know to be really outstanding caseworkers. And I think if we did that, first of all, they would be better respected. Um, They're often Better better paid. Um, They're treated abysmally by many people, um, including sometimes pediatricians, but especially in court, Um, you know, and, and, and they really are dealing with the most vulnerable, distressed, traumatized families in our society. And what they really deserve is our support and help um, with the families that they take care of. I think the training is also, and I'm hoping just by listening to you, you know, the training has to be us too. I mean, we have to understand the complexity, the the trauma of the, I mean, I think like you said, you know, there's the, the bio parents, there's the foster parents, and then at the heart of it is these children. And yeah. um, I think, you know, again, I remember hearing it some AAT that, you know, um, if we, if every decision we made in our lives, whether it's in, you know, politicians or physicians, whomever that are in leadership, if, if whenever we made a decision, we thought about, is this good for children, we'd be in a better place. And, and I think 
you know, what you're saying is we have to think about, you know, what is going on with these children and not labeling them, not blaming people, but empowering people to do better and including ourselves and that we have the capacity to care. I mean, I think we're good at that and maybe not recognizing that that skill that we have can be shared and we also need to recognize that it's an important skill yeah. that we need to learn and respect in ourselves and each other and the other professionals that we cross lines with. I always love it when a uh, foster care worker comes to an appointment. Yes. Uh, it happens infrequently and I actually had a foster care worker do a debrief with me because the situation was so complicated, was so traumatizing, it was just an awful experience on everybody's part, and she wanted to know if I was okay. It was the most amazing, I mean, she spent an hour with me, like, are you okay? I know you've taken care of these kids, I know this has been heartbreaking for you. Um, are you okay? Yeah. Wow, who would, who would have thought somebody would ask me that, you know? Right. But, I think it's, uh, you know, just sort of this idea of compassion and care are interventions that make a difference. You know, I learned very early from um, one of my other child welfare mentors, Cindy Lewis, who said, you know, a good place to start with families when things are going badly is to ask them, is there a time when things were better? And what was that like? And what will it take to get you back there? You know, and that's not a bad set of questions for pediatricians to think about also, because if we don't understand the context of families' lives and the stressors that they're dealing with, we're going to be offering them solutions that have no meaning for them. So, I, it, you know, and, I, and I, I really say that knowing that as pediatricians, we're pretty amazing about getting to the context of people's lives and there's so many things that we're charged with trying to cover i mean yeah. i was just listening to the new aap podcast and talking about drowning and you know it's like ah, note to self i need to specifically ask you you know the list has grown yeah. and all the anticipatory guidance but you know what are there some key things um i i love your three hours and i will make sure that we summarize reassure regulate and routine and being flexible but predictable that is yeah. just i mean those are good rules for everything that everybody <laughs> so, well listen i want to thank you for your time for your amazing work your storytelling thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me and um, we'll include in the show notes for those of you that are listening some links to many of the materials that Moira was talking about so that you can find some of these references. And again, thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure, Leah. <laughs> As always, take care. I want to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Moira Salaji for spending time talking about her amazing work on behalf of children in the foster care system. She has made such an impact on these children's lives, and she has so much to share with us that I think it's important that I list some pearls that she gave us. Number one, pediatricians can lead change. Number two, in order to make change happen, follow your passion. Number three, 
Don't feel afraid to take the plunge. Number four, find mentors along the way. Number five, when working with parents, help model a safe harbor for children. Number six, teach parents the three R's to reassure, to regulate, and to create routines for children. Number seven, create an emotional container for children's emotions. Number eight, teach adults to be flexible but predictable. And number nine, if we could do one thing to transform the foster care system, in a dream world, training would be professionalized for foster care parents, for foster care workers, and for those of us who care for children in foster care. Thank you again so much, Moira, for your words of wisdom and compassion. And I want to thank all of you for listening. I know you're very busy people, and I appreciate your time. Please take a minute to look at the show notes and see all the links and references. And again, I appreciate you and the work that you do. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and any thoughts you might have about future topics. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.